we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast, from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Episode 2, The New York City and Hudson Valley Relationship, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Thank you for joining us for our first podcast with criminal justice expert, Jeremy Travis. I'm Jonathan Drapkin, and I'm the President and CEO of Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. If you have any questions, comments, please send them to patternforprogress.org slash podcast. As we endeavor to find guests to spur creative thinking and solutions for problems facing us in the Hudson Valley, I think what our first guest made clear is that we should think about the metrics for what makes for a safe and healthy community. He also spent some time on slogans like defund the police which are meant really to get the conversation going, albeit, as Jeremy said, like a two by four. We noticed this week that Minneapolis is walking back from their original position to do just that. We suggest that the better approach is to involve not just the police and community leaders, but that coming during a pandemic, we should recognize the critical role that health officials and housing organizations play in building healthy communities. So how to get started? Well, one approach might be to focus on a section of the community that is suffering from blight, high crime, and poor health outcomes. Form a task force of the necessary officials to help address these concerns. Then you can tackle a piece of the challenge sections of your community one at a time. It will appear less overwhelming. Now for today's guest, Um, New York City plays a critical role in the Hudson Valley. Tourism, food, finances, jobs, just to name a few. There is a symbiotic relationship, and it is potentially the biggest market for some goods and services made in the Hudson Valley, and it is right on our doorstep. Our guest today is Carolyn Grossman-Mark. Carolyn is the regional planner for New York City's Department of Planning. It is interesting to note that New York City is the only city to have such a position. Our goal in talking with Carolyn is to start to find ways to build on that relationship going forward, imagining the possibilities, finding new ways to interact with that market on our south. But before Carolyn, let's ask, what's up, Joe, to hear what Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress is up to this week. Thanks, Jonathan. Today, I'd like to talk about our Rural Action Agenda. We've been busy here at Pattern, but we're trying to focus very much on the rural areas of our communities. In the past, we've concentrated a lot of our work on the urban centers, hence the Urban Action Agenda. This program was established five years ago thanks to a large grant from the Ford Foundation. The Urban Action Agenda consisted of an intensive examination of 25 cities and villages throughout our nine counties. The communities ranged from large cities like New Rochelle and Yonkers to small cities like Hudson and Port Jervis. We included villages as large as Walden to small little tiny villages out in Putnam County like Brewster, all of which faced similar urban challenges in terms of infrastructure, governance, housing, poverty, and areas of disinvestment. Our goal was to provide a deep dive into research and analysis 
to move these urban centers forward. We provided amazing community and housing profiles as a foundation of data for local leaders and community stakeholders that were used for grant writing and securing collaborative partnerships with developers, investors, and community organizations. Much of the Hudson Valley as we define it to cover Columbia, Dutchess, Green, Orange, Putnam, Rockland, Sullivan, Ulster, and Westchester counties have lots of rural communities. Not like Nebraska rural, but small and much less dense than our villages and certainly our cities. These rural areas are facing many challenges, which were heightened during the pandemic. Our rural agenda focuses on planning and capacity building, revitalizing the, the small little main streets, capitalizing on entrepreneurial spirit of small towns, and connecting the dots between the workforce, economic development, and housing. Specifically, solving issues like access to broadband, transportation, childcare, housing, and crumbling infrastructure are paramount to its success. At the end of 2019, our board of directors recognized these challenges as an important issue to tackle. Challenges so critical to the overall health and vibrancy of the region, it is now in our strategic plan as an organization. Pattern is now convening bi-weekly supervisors forums to discuss all of these issues. Two of the major issues identified so far include access to broadband and rural housing. To that end, just last week, we co-hosted a webinar to discuss housing challenges in the rural areas. We're looking to secure federal resources to assist communities with their strategic planning efforts. And Pattern is identifying specific community concerns and will continue to provide recommendations and solutions in our rural areas. Again, we're very busy and we're doing all we can to assist the Hudson Valley to achieve success. Oh yeah, one last thing. Please put a hold on November 16th through November 20th for Patterns Housing Week. We've secured two amazing keynote speakers so far and we'll be filling out at least one webinar each day of the week. Diane Yentel, CEO of the National Low Income Housing Coalition, will be joining us to discuss housing policy from the national level. And Ed Poteet, author and developer, will be delivering an insightful keynote conversation and speech on gentrification. People will be able to essentially build their own conference for the week. More to be released about that event very soon. Well, that's what's going on with Pattern this week. Thank you. Today, our guest is Carolyn Grossman Marr. She's the Director of Regional Planning at the New York City Department of City Planning. And she's been in this position, and, and if I'm correct, it's it's the only position municipal. Maybe there's been one, you know, create. I don't even know. Has there been one created since I, then? I don't think we have any copycats yet. <laughs> Looking All for right. takers. And 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 you did a prior stint at New York City Planning where you were there for almost uh, seven years or so. That's about right. I think I'm almost at, uh, I started in January 2007, so I'm approaching lifer status. So why don't you start off by explaining what your position is since it's unusual as it's the only one in the country. Sure. And, and, and let me start and say thank you, Jonathan, for the opportunity to be here. I'm very excited uh, that you're taking on a podcast. Uh, I, I, I'm less excited to hear myself than I am all of the other incredible panelists that I know you're going to have. And, and, you know, I'm a, a longtime avid reader of all the pattern uh, 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 material. So I know this is going to be a really good uh, new forum for you. Um, so in 2015, New York City was engaged in its long-term planning process, which is called 1NYC. Uh, this started as Plan YC under the uh, Bloomberg administration almost, uh, I guess we're fif almost 15 years ago now. 
Um, and every four years, the city is required to take another long-term look very comprehensively at what our future will be over the next generation. In 2015, the first plan was done under this mayor, the de Blasio administration. And as part of that process, um, my former boss, Carl, Carl Weisbrod, our planning chair at the time, and the first deputy mayor, Tony Shores, uh, who were co-chairing the plan, really started um, to see that all of the goals that the city wanted to achieve from an equity perspective, from a prosperity perspective, from a sustainability perspective, were incredibly intertwined with the region, which in some sense is obvious. We are a city that lives amidst a very large metro region. We are surrounded by more population outside. Much of our infrastructure resides outside of the city. Um, we're a very interconnected ecosystem, but it was really a new and novel um, in this generation, at least, um, thought that New York City, in order to accomplish its objectives of being that really equitable and sustainable and prosperous city, needed to understand and work more effectively with its regional counterparts. So in that plan, they recommended one of the one of the actions of that plan was to create an office of regional planning within the city that would really help the city start looking outward um, more than it had in at least a generation. And there's some interesting, you know, historical precedents to this. But, you know, I think, you know, what we saw in the in the late part of the 20th century is a real divide between the city and its suburbs for many reasons, some of which I think will probably come out in some of the things we covered today and we're seeing today in post-COVID. Um, but really, you know, to help break down those barriers from a data and analytic perspective, to help us see the bigger picture, to help us know our neighbors more than we have in the past, and to really find those places where we were all trying to achieve the same thing, but maybe our governmental silos were sort of not, you know, stopping us from seeing that we were sort of trying to get to the same place. Um, and so, you know, we were created, I came in on board um, back to city planning, as you said, I'm, this is my third job at city planning. Um, but I came back to start this office in 2016 to really help us, you know, figure out, okay, so that's a big ambition. Um, we really think that this is sort of the future of the way the city should be doing its planning thinking. Um, where do we start and how do we, how do we start to break down some of those silos? And, you know, we've really taken it from, from two approaches. One is, how do we know the region better? How do we take the things New York City does really well in understanding ourselves and zoom out so that we really understand ourselves in the right context? And then how do we share those lessons and, and learn from lessons, which is really about creating more of a communication infrastructure um, with our governmental partners, right? I, I love to tell this story that when I met the planning director for Jersey City, she had worked there for 30 years. She had never met with the city of New York, even though she can see our offices from her window. Um, so we really tried to build up our relationships with other like-minded planning, you know, in, in, in cities and counties and, and representing the region, you know, all across that we're thinking about issues like housing affordability and job creation and sustainability, you know, think how we could share those lessons more effectively and more consistently. Um, and then from that, really trying to birth out these ideas of where we can, where, where we can work together. Um, so, you know, I think what we have found, I think the biggest success is that this started as, as an experiment four years ago, and now it very much feels like the way we're doing planning in the city, right? That we, that this is just, you know, of course you think about the region, of course you think about the context, of course what we do in the city matters to outside, and of course what happens outside matters to us, and we're increasingly finding those new opportunities um, for partnership and 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 like cause, and what I would also say is, you know, I think with COVID, you know, the silver lining is that regionalism does appear to be everywhere now, right? It's not just us in the city thinking about this, but what we've seen is, you know, states are partnering with each other on health solutions because, of course, disease doesn't know governmental boundaries either. We're seeing that in our region, but we've also seen it in interesting places across the country. Um, and I think especially lately, as the country really focuses on equity, you know, and, and post-George Floyd, really thinking about segregation, fair housing, health outcomes, and how these are all tied together, we're seeing people think about that in a regional context as well. And I can tell you, you know, I, I, from what I'm hearing, that's, that's across the country as well, that people are really starting to think about how the systems we've created that function at a regional scale to connect homes and workers in, in unequal ways have these profound effects, including on our health. 
So let me explain to our listeners that that's exactly how we we met in the context of I am the CEO for a regional organization for nine counties in the Hudson Valley. And that when I learned that there was this unit within New York City planning that actually has responsibility to look at the broader region, I said, I need to find that person. And uh, that was the start of a beautiful friendship, was finding out that we share this in common, the idea of thinking regionally to um, approach issues. Now, you became actually well known for the Geography of Jobs report, which you did once, and then I think you updated it. And so why don't you explain a little bit about what that report was, and then let's use that as a jumping off point to talk about what may be happening. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. Um, that's right. And I, I know you'll put a link in. I'll, I'll, I'll note to your, to your listeners that we put out a lot of materials at nyc.gov slash region. Uh, uh, hope, hope you'll read up. There's some really interesting interactive tools there as well. Um, we've been putting out sort of the signature report now. We've done two of them under this title, Geography of Jobs. Um, really, as I said, to get at this idea of sort of what is happening in a sort of tectonic and gravitational shift sense to our region vis-a-vis jobs and talent and and demographics. How are we seeing those uh, the the city and the region playing out over time um, uh, and sort of changing the shape of of where our region lives um, and and where we work? And what we really found is that over the 20th century, the region was very, very reliant on suburban growth. And I'm using suburban just to mean anything outside of New York City's boundaries, right? We really grew outward as a region. People know this story, you know, we built highways, we built outwards, we built low density housing. We kept going further and further out. And that really came to a stop in the mid 2000s. We kind of ran out of room. Also the, the, the Great Recession caused some really fundamental changes to Um, housing stock, what people wanted, also what was financeable. There's a lot going on in there. But what we really saw is that post-Great Recession, um, the the nature of where housing was being created in our region changed dramatically, which which changed also dramatically where we were seeing jobs being created. And so we see um, a pattern started earlier than that, but a real exacerbation in the last decade of centralization of, of employment opportunities in our region into New York City. Um, the vast majority, I think we're looking at about 80, 90% of job creation in our region happening within New York City, even though we only represent 40% of population, 40% of jobs, you know, typically. Um, so really disproportionate job growth in the city, in part because the city has done so much since the 1970s to make itself a place that is attractive but also because of some of the deficits um, uh, that we've seen in other parts of our region in continuing to be a place where talent wants and is able to live and, and, and work. Um, and what I mean by that, again, in that when we look at, it all comes back to housing. Um, what we had seen you know, in our region the last uh, 10 years, we've all done very badly at building enough housing to keep our region affordable. We built, we added about two times as many jobs as we did housing units. Um, And in New York City, it was actually pretty bad because we added so many jobs relative to our housing base. But in every other generation where New York City's growth has been that strong, we've seen suburban markets really supporting that, right? You look back a generation ago, New York City had a job base, but it also had Levittown. It had all of these very low cost, affordable alternatives where people could leave the city, continue to commute in and grow that ecosystem. What we've seen today is that most of our suburban markets really haven't been adding housing and they've become even more unaffordable than the city, which let me tell you, has been pretty unaffordable. Um, And so what we've seen is an increase in people who are staying in the city, particularly in those prime age labor groups that are so important to job attraction and retention, right? Young workers, um, you know, 25 to 54, especially with a bachelor's degree, let's say, um, but really across the whole age group. Um, and then we've seen people leaving for the rest of the country as well, right? So that role that our suburban housing markets had played in buttressing the ecosystem and then also creating job creation for themselves by by attracting the talent, um, we really saw that slow down and go to cert- only to where it was happening in certain locations, places like 
the coast of New Jersey, where they are still building an awful lot of housing, transit-oriented locations. You can see in Westchester, for instance, you know, a place like New Rochelle has added thousands of units, but Westchester County overall has not because the areas that historically were building low-density housing have effectively run out of places to do it. Um, the Most of the communities have been resistant to growth. And so even though growth is happening in a few locations, overall, we really haven't been producing an awful lot. So all of that has added together to really, prior to COVID and prior to this, this moment of, of stochastic shock, create enormous concentration in New York City, the benefits of which have been that we've had great job growth and we've had great talent growth and, and much and, and, and the ability to really turn that to some really important equitable investments and, and upward mobility within the city, with the challenges, of course, being increased on affordability um, and inequality that have been sort of endemic in that, too. So let me stop so, there and say that's sort of the yeah. pre-COVID. <laughs> well, well, and I, right, that's the pre-COVID. And so then along comes COVID. And a number of things are at play here. We have the concern for the virus. We have an economic downturn. We have social unrest. And I have to say the Hudson Valley's real estate market in my 25 years of living here has never been hotter. There are reports of that in parts of New Jersey, parts of Connecticut. In, and it's almost as if, but certainly not for these reasons, that there are people moving to part of your greater region. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I want to, you know, certainly I'm looking for your thoughts on that, but what I think makes this a little different than what's occurred in the past is that this whole notion of remote work. Mm -hmm. And in addition, you know, people are finding, I don't know that I have to be in the central urban core, Manhattan, let's say, or for those of us that ever had the joys of commuting, maybe they don't have to commute and they get X hours a day back. Where do you come out and where do you think this is all heading? Yeah. So I think, you know, I, let me let me throw two economic, there's sort of two economic impacts that are happening in, 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 in tandem right now. One is we're losing jobs, right? Or we have lost jobs. And we've lost jobs unequally. We've seen the service industries much more affected than we have office industries, right? Our office jobs are fairly stable in terms of how many we have relative to, to you know, six months ago. Then we have dislocation, physical dislocation, right? Which you're describing, which is that there are industries where you, ha you still have a job, mine included, you know, where you're able to work remotely and it's unclear when you might go back, right? And those are much, those are also spread unequally, almost in the opposite direction, right? Where office type jobs, also educational jobs have been more, more dislocated than others. Um, we've done a little bit of math and, um, you know, there's some national standards on who is telework capable or not. We don't know who is teleworking because we have no data to really show us right now. But we know who's telework capable. And based on the mix of jobs we have in our region, we think there's about 3.4 million telework capable workers out of the 10 or 11 million workers we have in our region. Right. So I say that just to say it's a big number, but it's a minority in terms of, of, of actual work. Right. And so you know, when we think about telework and this dislocation, we always have to remember that it's like, who's who can telework, right? And it's only, you know, some of our population, what they're mostly experiencing right now is that they've continued to work um, and, they're, and they've had to deal with health risks and the, and the commuting risks that have come along with that. Some of our population is dealing with the loss of employment entirely. And some of our population is dealing with, they're actually, their income has been stable and they're just sitting at home and trying to figure out how to work from their personal laptop. Um, so like a, excuse me. So like a good planner, what you're doing is you're segmenting the workforce to say, let's not paint a picture of everything being one. There are different issues that are occurring in different parts of the workforce. Right. And, 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 and both are really important. 
Um, but you know, so, and it really depends what you're planning for, right? If you're planning for the future of what happens in Manhattan, the fact that populations are dislocated from their offices in Manhattan is really important. If what you're thinking about is transportation right now, well, the people who are still moving and really still need to move around for their livelihood are much more important than the people who are kind of fine staying put. Um, so, you know, uh, I guess let me jump back to the, the question of dislocation. What do we sort of make of telework? Well, you know, I think at some point you start with the anecdotal, right? Because I've been teleworking for six months and I know for myself there was a productivity gain of being able to be home and, you know, pat my dog every five minutes and, you know, uh, uh, you know, not only get to wear pajama pants, you know, for like half the week. Right. So there's a lot there's a lot I think that people have really valued. Um, there's some real challenges in terms of childcare that have have also really affected the, the workforce. So work from home is you know different depending on 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 what constraints you have on on you. And then I think there's also a weariness that set in you know in the sort of like the six months here where I know at least for my team and 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 my agency there are some people who are actually really anxious to get back to to an office at least in some part. That being said, I think you know with great uncertainty about how big a phenomenon this is, I think we all sort of feel like it's probably, um, you know, sticking around at least in some part. And maybe there's some ideal where it's not as required to go back into an office all the time, or we find, you know, there, there, there's, there's some opportunity that's been opened up in, 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 in by telework that is, um, you know, that creates advantages and opportunities, you know, in, in, in the long term. I would say, you know, the, for the city, the, the largest issue really is Manhattan, right? What's happening in Manhattan is very different than I think what we've been seeing happening in other boroughs. In a borough like Brooklyn, where you have a lot more resident population, you know, a lot more mix, you know, you don't have that intensity of, 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 of CBD use. We've actually seen some really good things happening on the ground, right? We've seen um, our restaurants coming out into the street and like giving us, you know, a sense of life. We've seen bike riding that's increased. We've seen, um, uh, you know, retail and consumer spending that's been like much closer to where 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 it should be. Um, so I think people are talking a lot about the 15 minute city and the opportunity to really think about bringing services and uses like closer to home and 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 um, that sort of decentralized planning. And I think those same lessons really apply to any location within the region that finds themselves with an increased daytime population. It's like, okay, well, you're here now. We would like you to stay. What do we think about in terms of the planning lessons of making that possible? And, and I think that also applies to people who are temporarily dislocated from New York City, you know, maybe staying in an Airbnb up in the Hudson Valley, maybe, bought, you know, right? So what are the things that you can do to take these opportunities and turn them into long-term planning solutions, right? Well, certainly it starts with having enough housing. And I, and I you know, I, I hear all of these stories about the, 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 the real estate markets that are on fire all across our, our region. And I do wonder how much of that is being driven by, I mean, there's clearly increased demand, but there's also a very constrained supply. Correct. Right. And so absolutely. If you are a hamlet, you know, in 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 the Hudson Valley that had 10 houses on the market last year and now 20 people want them, that is a 100 percent increase in the demand in your hamlet. I think a lot of that is what we're seeing. Right. Is that, you know, there's a demand for alternatives, which is good. But we also have a dearth of alternatives that really can keep people in our region. So. You know what what we're thinking about again in the city we're thinking about this within our outer boroughs um but i i you know i think and what i hear from our, our compatriots across the region is thinking about how do you turn that into you know the things we already wanted to do and and and, and focus on and creating complete communities in the locations where there's now more opportunity to do so and really taking advantage of that demand as a way to break down some of those supply walls that may have been there in the past um so, you know, that is separate from what's going on with Manhattan, which was really about, you know, we had a, a place where, you know, two and a half, 2.6 million people work, you know, 700,000 of those are people who live outside of New York City, who mostly come in by transit um, to dense office places. 
who are coming in, right? That the 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 that we've seen the offices are, you know, um, you know, still at extremely low occupancies. And as a result, all of the other industries that are typically in Manhattan, whether it's tourism, hotels, services that's you know, restaurants, you know, are all also suffering because of that lack of business in the in the central business district. Um, you know, and that is a real challenge. There is no real return to normal for New York City, and I would argue for our region until people, you know, feel comfortable going back to Manhattan. Does that mean, you know, that there will that we have discovered competitive advantages to other circumstances? Probably, but um, we are a region that was built with a center, you know, and and so the health of that center. Um, in many ways still remains, I think, our raison d'etre. Um, and so it's hard for me, you know, to think about a world where we can solve, you know, that we can do all these healthy things on the periphery, but, um, you know, we really need that healthy business district um, to, 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 to support the core of what, you know, it, it's sort of the, it's the core on which everything else rests in my mind, is the center and transit. Well, no, and I and I think that's absolutely right. And I think that um, people throughout New York State sometimes forget how much the state of New York relies upon the revenue that is generated by New York City to support programs throughout New York State. So that a healthy New York, and especially a healthy Manhattan, is actually of importance to all parts of New York State even if they don't see or understand the financial nexus between it. Let me give you one crazy idea. And just as a planner, um, I, I was just curious. So I, look, I'm a New York City kid. We'll always be a New York City kid. I grew up in Queens. I worked in Manhattan for years. So I said, what, what could jettison New York City to once again, which I have no doubt it will happen. It's just what it will look like. So one theory I had was there's a part of New York City that always wanted to be a world city, which it probably is anyway, consider that. But could you take the, like a core of about 20 square blocks, including the theater district in Times Square, close it off completely to traffic. And, you know, remember there's a little bit of this going on in congestion pricing and thinking about, you know, how do you reduce the number of automobiles and turn it into the European city with bicycles and restaurants that have kind of enjoyed expanding and have it as a, an entire walkable district in the middle. All deliveries, you know, truck deliveries are done at night. And once again, it becomes so spectacular that people say, I have to go visit New York City, in particular <laughs> Manhattan. All right. What are the what are the 10 reasons why that can happen? No, Jonathan, I actually I, I don't think it sounds that crazy. And I would say, you know, closing off even the portions of Times Square that we have closed off to pedestrians. You know, that idea was called crazy until we did it. Right. And now it's one of the most successful pedestrian plazas in the world. Right. So I, I don't think, you know, the details we can, of course, you know, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and many, many would uh, uh, quibble over. But the opportunity right now to think about, you know, with this mobility disruption, how do we use that to, to adapt our streets is something that planners all over the world are really thinking about very clearly. Um, something that I, um, in my spare time, have been very involved with, um, even though it's not, you know, really part of my regionalism portfolio, is the open restaurants program. Um, New York tell, City tell, had, don't know what it is. Please so, tell so us. So New about. York City had, uh, prior to COVID, we had about 900 licensed cafes, sidewalk cafes in the city. When COVID hit, and we, like many municipalities, said we have to move restaurants outdoors for safety purposes. Um, uh, a number of agencies got together to say, how can we make a program that's much more lightweight, um, you know, and, and easy for, for restaurants to take advantage of uh, um, in, in this moment, right? Because we were looking at, you know, we said we have 30,000 restaurants in the city. 
if we have to take every one of those restaurants through a review process and an inspection process and go to our community boards and, you know, we'll never actually give anybody the relief they deserve. So we created a program basically overnight in New York City um, that has now allowed 10,000 restaurants to get sidewalk and roadway cafes, really substantial operations in New York City. So again, I just say 900. Now we have 10,000 within three months. And I know, Jonathan, you worked in New York City government. You know, that would never have happened pre-COVID, right? But the creativity and innovation and the, the necessity of the moment has allowed us to create a program that's amazing, right? So wait, wait, let me stop you right there because that's a great way for us to explain what the whole purpose and genesis of this podcast was, which is how do we use this moment in time to go to a place that we couldn't get to before and possibly come out of this in a better place, a better understanding, people happier about it, I know that seems so hard right now with all the misery that occurs from the economic disruption, from the virus, from the social protest, but that is the goal. And so, Carolyn, you're just walking right into it. Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think this is one, again, we're we're probably the biggest cafe program in the country now because New York is usually the biggest at everything. But it's one that, you know, I've seen cafes. I had dinner in... Uh, in Rye at an outdoor cafe just a few weeks ago. Um, I know they're all really almost every municipality that has a restaurant scene has been able to figure out how to adapt that to outdoor, create outdoor seats, outdoor cafes, outdoor fully closed streets during this period. And I think, um, you know, there are real challenges that we're going to have to deal with in terms of, you know, balancing parking. People have always worried about that balancing freight uh, loading. We're, we're, we're taking curb space away just at the, as the same time as we're increasing freight usage. So there's some conflicts that have to get managed, but the opportunity is being grabbed by, by lots of municipalities and people love it, right? It's, you know, our restaurants are still hurting and we need to do a lot more to economically rescue them and other services. Um, but just in a simple, like, a pr- joy of an appreciation of an urban setting. I think it's the most powerful thing we've done in this period. Um, and so I do think that there, those adaptations of street um, are something that is really coming out of this moment that we should all be hanging on to. Um, I've got another happy sort of joyful opportunity if, 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 you, uh, if you want me to go there, Jonathan. I do. Of course so, I do. So we haven't, we haven't touched on this subject uh, yet, but I think a really important one for your listeners is Thinking about the food supply, absolutely, um, which I know you and I have have, have discussed on an, uh, on you know many occasions, including you know well before COVID. Um, but something, you know, something again that I think people realized during COVID, particularly in the early days, as we were worrying about supply chain disruptions um, to the food supply of New York. Really, you know, people who were for the first time concerned that like New Yorkers, you know, um, might not get food into the city. Um, you know, w- you know, we're looking at stories of, you know, Smithfield plants, um, you know, yes. and pl- places all across the world that were shutting down food operations, the ability to get food, especially fresh food into the city became a real challenge and a real, um, you know, policy crisis as we were working with neighbors, you know, to make sure that trucks could still get into the city without quarantine, right, or that, you know, or that we had safe practices to make sure that people could actually make their food deliveries enormous efforts went on behind the scenes from the government and and especially I think from trucking industry, freight industry, um, grocery stores, you know, all to make sure that people, and I don't want, you know, New York, but all of us continued to get fed. Out of that, I think has come a real interest in thinking about the regional food system as a way, we always knew it was a good way to get fresh food, um, particularly for vulnerable, uh, you know, in food deserts and, 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 and vulnerable populations that don't have great access to fresh food. We always knew it was good for sustainability because we can truck food from less distance. Um, but regional food as a resiliency strategy, as a way to protect ourselves against these very long supply chains that are sometimes global in nature, that can be um, disrupted in a crisis, I think is a new point of interest from a lot of people who work with food systems. Um, and so thinking about, you know, I heard all these crazy stories of, well, you know, we actually 
slaughter cows in Pennsylvania, but we're trucking the meat, the, the, the carcasses down to Georgia to get processed and then bringing them back up because we don't have adequate processing facilities anywhere in the tri-state area. There's all kinds of weird stuff like that where our food system is creating inefficiencies and insecurities because we're not thinking like a region together. So I think there's a really important opportunity, um, and not just I, I think many people are starting to ID this opportunity to strengthen the regional connections between upstate production and downstate consumption as a way to create value all through that, uh, through that supply chain. So another area I think we'll be doing a lot more work um, I mentioned to you the city is doing a 10-year food plan. Um, I expect that this is going to be an area of inquiry and I think of, of increased communication with regional partners to make sure that we're, you know, with everything that we're doing, that we're getting this right, right? We can't, we're the consumers, we're the end of the supply chain. But this only really happens if there's better coordination with stakeholders all throughout. And I think it's, it's going to be a really exciting area for planning in the next many years. When you first mentioned this to me when we spoke uh a couple of weeks ago, I realized I have to get you a report that we did about three or four years ago about uh, just this issue, about where we mapped every farm, everything in the Hudson Valley and actually beyond, and then attempted at that point to create the synergy with New York City. And I will, if you haven't seen it, I'll make certain that you've got it. It was a very well-recognized report up here. Um, but it should help in the planning of how do we create this relationship, certainly with the Hudson Valley and beyond, um, and New York City, because the biggest market is on our doorstep. We don't have to look for that market. It's right there. And yep. I, I love the idea that this could be one of those things that comes out of this whole period, which is how do we make this into a more robust um, relationship between, you know, the region and that's right in your, you know, wheelhouse. Um, uh, any other thoughts about how Manhattan or the city might take, you know, it might go in other directions or something that we're, we're not the, like for instance, transportation. So it's very interesting. The governor mentioned that, you know, I, I, I kind of, he was almost you know, pleading with people to say, I really need you to think about mass transit again, because if you don't get back into trains and you still keep going in cars because you don't think mass transit is safe, well, it's causing traffic congestion. And then, of course, there's the financial impact on the MTA, which has already been terrific. And if it doesn't regain its ridership, I'm told the subway is actually starting to get you know, I don't know, somewhere 50, 60% of their ridership. Um, but I don't know if that's really true throughout the MTA system. Have you been able to, you know, any sense of what's happening? Yeah, well, let me start with, again, I think just my own personal experience, just, you know, I, I, hopefully, you're, you know, your, your, your listeners have been to New York City recently or have talked to somebody, but I, I, there are a lot of myths out there about what's going on in the city right now. So, you know, let, let me start with, I go out every day. I go to dinner at outdoor cafes. I've gone to my office several times. I ride the subways. I wear a mask. Most people are wearing masks. It feels relatively safe. And like, you know, it's not normal. There's nothing normal about walking around, you know, New York City wearing masks, but it's become a new normal in a sense. So. You know, these ideas, you know, for anyone out there who thinks that like the city is like full of roving bandits and like, you know, is on fire, you know, that's not the experience of living in New York City right now. Right. It is it is um, a place that's gone through, a, a, you know, a, a remarkable trauma, but is actually very, you know, from a from an incidence perspective has come back extremely well, I think, in part because we have a population that's been extremely behaviorally sensitive and listening to its you know, it's science leaders who tell them wearing a mask works. It turns out wearing a mask works, you know, and, um, you know, even on the subway. Right. So, you know, just to say, I think there are some, you know, there's some evidence of, um, uh, uh, you know, of unemployment and, and poverty. I've certainly seen 
um, you know, uh, homeless population and, and, you know, that, that, you know, is more evident than maybe it was six months before, you know, so there's some stuff going on, but it's, it's, it's really much more at the margins than I think there are, you know, that, that, that at least national media has been portraying. Um, so that being said, I think everything you said and that the governor has been saying about transit is, is, is right. Um, I'm not sure we're really at 50% yet. Um, okay. I'm just trying to pull up some stats right now. It's sure. I think it's a it's a little less than than 50, but um, you know, ridership has returned to some extent. I can tell you, you know, when you're on a train, it's not completely empty anymore. Um, although there's some interesting things. Um, you know, I've been riding at peak, right? So peaks are behaving quite differently now because you've taken out the peakiest of commuter patterns into, into the into the core. Um, but but auto right uh, uh, um, auto usage in Manhattan is almost back to normal. So this pattern that people really are moving around, it's not clear they're going to their offices, but people are still going to Manhattan, and it's a lot more by car. That is a real concern, and I think it is a shame that we don't have congestion pricing um, infrastructure being put in place this year, as was intended, because it's a policy tool that really could help us both raise revenue for transit and manage our um, our streets a little bit more effectively. So we're at a loss for no good reason, you know, effectively because the federal government, you know, blocked uh, uh, progress on this even before COVID. Um, you know, so um, I think that that, you know, I think the word people use is Carmageddon um, is a is a real here and it's something I hope you know regional residents really appreciate too, right? Because I think when you look at workers who work in Manhattan who own a car, um, the percentages are higher when you look at the region. You know, the, the reality is, you know, there's a lot of car owners in Queens and Brooklyn who work in Manhattan as well, um, but you know, there, but there's higher incidences in 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 in, in the um, in regional commuters in. So you do worry that that population will start thinking, well, I can go back to my office, but I'll drive in. And I think it is it, it is a okay. is a problem we're going to have to manage as 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 offices come back online. There's just not going to be enough space for for. for yeah, I, Carolyn, I think the the safety, just to be clear, was more in line with, well, just like we said earlier, there are segments. So I think there's still people that think about COVID safety. And then there is that image of lawlessness, which I quite agree with you is a very, very, well, there are some issues that are coming back in New York City, but it's so far removed from when I worked in New York City in the 80s and the crack epidemic. And when, you know, it really was taking, uh, it really was quite adventurous riding the subways back then. Um, or even in Portland, people will talk about, you know, the television image of Portland being lawless. You know, most residents of Portland will say it's in a 10 square block area. Other than that, I don't really experience any of that. And I don't know what you're talking about. Um, boy, we can, I could do this with you for <laughs> hours, but I, I just really have I just have one last thing. So can you confirm for me that uh uh, there is a story that uh, you were proposed to down in the subways on 86th and the Second Avenue subway earlier in its development, and I just wanted to know if that was a true story. As someone who loves infrastructure, and you're a planner, did did that actually occur? So my uh, when I started at City Planning uh, back in 2007, uh, there was a young uh, planner in our Manhattan office uh, who represented the Upper West Side. Uh, we worked together for many years, but actually uh, it was, I think, 2010, we were working on uh, reforming the Manhattan parking regulations. Um, it really is where love, love struck. Um, and so uh, many years later, um, when it you know, came time to uh, make our, uh, our love uh, permanent, he uh, contacted the MTA and he said, uh, you know, can I go on a, you know, I want to take my girlfriend on a tour of the Second Avenue subway construction. And they said, no, absolutely not. It's only for 
uh, only for people who are affected by the, the construction. He said, okay, well, her parents live above one of the stations. Can, you know, we go with them? Can we go? No, no, they can go on the tour because, you know, they're, they're, they're impacted by construction. You can't go. I said, okay, well, let me just tell you why I want to go. I have this idea that I'll propose. She's a planner. I'm a planner. I want to propose in the tunnel. The MTA said, you know, we've never had a good press day on seven, second Avenue construction in our, you know, the entire, you know, uh, construction period. Absolutely. And, you know, can we send a press squad with you? So, you know, obviously all of this is unbeknownst to me. Um, you know, I show up for a, for a, for a tunnel tour, which seemed like a great idea for a Saturday morning. Uh, uh, didn't ask why my father gave up his golf game to go in a, in a, in a, in a, in a subway tunnel really should have been the, uh, the, the giveaway there. Um, but yes, all of this is to say, uh, my, my, my loving husband, now we're about to hit our five year anniversary, um, uh, got down on his knees in a, in a muddy subway tunnel in front of, uh, the chief construction officer of the MTA and 50 strangers uh, and, and, and proposed to me. And um, I will, you know, forever be grateful for both the proposal and, uh, you know, the uh, pageantry that surrounded it. All right. So, th- so there you have it. A, 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 tr- a true story um, that, you know, could have been in New York City urban mythology, <laughs> but it actually really happened. And um, Carolyn, I want to thank you for joining us and uh, sharing your views on what uh, COVID may be for the future of the city and the region. And I look forward to working with you on how we can actually use this to make it a better um, place to live. So thank you. Jonathan, it's an absolute pleasure. And likewise, I think the work that you guys do is so wonderful and absolutely looking forward to more opportunities to to take a uh, take our partnership forward thank you for tuning in to patterns and paradigms the pattern podcast for more information about this episode visit our website patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast